So Isaiah 58, starting in verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Continuing in uh, chapter 61, verses 1 through 3 now. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news. To whom? To the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, who mourn and provide for those who grieved in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Amen. Thanks, John. Morning, everybody. My name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to see you guys. Um, I want to open up with a question for you to think about, and that is, simple question, how, how do we motivate people to do good for others? How do we motivate people to do good for others? The other night I was watching a uh, TED Talk, um, and it was entitled, uh, How to Motivate People to Do Good for Others. Um, <laughs> And it was a a professor from MIT, and uh, the thesis of his talk was that people essentially like to be seen as people who do good for other people. And so if we harness the power of people's reputations and we utilize their desire to be seen by others as people who are doing good and people who are kind, then we can use that to motivate them to act in the interest of others. And they conducted all these experiments and social setups and, you know, people around Christmas time with the Salvation Army bell in front of the Walmart and that type of stuff. And the result was if they could get people to feel on the spot like they were being watched, that the results of people's generosity increased by 300% on average. It's pretty awesome, right? And I was like, yeah, big surprise there. Like, I couldn't believe what I was hearing because it's like, I thought, is that the best we can do, is motivate people essentially with guilt and shame and fear? Of course that motivates people. Of course, if people are watching you, you're going to give more, but it, it just motivates you for the moment, right? It does, it, does it really change their hearts? That's the question. And if guilt can't change their heart, what can? 
So a couple nights later, I'm sitting in my living room and uh, watching uh, Christmas Carol with uh, the fam, and uh, I saw something clear as day. If you've ever seen the movie or you read the, the novel by Charles Dickens, uh, you know Scrooge is quite a character. Scrooge is, you know, he's one of those guys you love to hate, you hate to love him, um, and I think we all, we all kind of like Scrooge a little, even though we kind of can't stand him, because there's something strangely familiar about him, that we all, if we're honest, we, we, we see a little bit of Scrooge in our own hearts, right, a little bit of that, so in, in this story, you know, you realize as you watch the story, he wasn't always that way, he wasn't always so scroogey and humbuggy and, you know, wringing his hands together and, and, and cackling and trying to figure out ways to make more and more money, right? But as the story unfolds and he's visited by these three spirits, the spirit of these ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future, you see he was in love once. Scrooge, he was in love once. He was, there was a time where he was optimistic about life. There was a time where he was like fun and fancy free, but we see this change slowly take hold of him, subtly. He starts spending more and more time at the office. He starts spending more and more time, like, counting his money and away from loved ones. And, and, and slowly, as he accumulates this wealth, all of a sudden, his net worth kind of becomes the source of his self-worth. And you see, you see Scrooge, slowly, life just becomes this perpetual pursuit of more, more power, more money, more security, more more, more, to the point where he's so preoccupied with his little life that he's completely unmoved by the needs around him. But as the story progresses and he faces the past, present, and future, something within him starts to shift. And it's like there's this little button that gets pushed and he comes alive. And as I watched A Christmas Carol for the probably thousandth time in my life, I realized that this story is a story that's all about grace. It's a story, in the end, we see Scrooge totally move and transition from this place of greed to this place of generosity. And it's all because there's this huge movement in his life away from guilt and toward grace. So I want to take a similar journey today for the next few minutes. And uh, because Scrooge is just like us, and I think if we're all honest, we look at our lives, tiny shifts can happen over time and pretty soon our lives have become all about the world that we're building, our pursuits, our romances, our, our finances, all these things in our life that we're chasing after. And it didn't start out that way. There was this time where, for many of us, if you're a believer here, you realized how much God loved you. You realized how much he gave and sacrificed to have you. And, and in that moment, you like gave your heart, you gave your life to him, and it's like everything was made new, and the Holy Spirit was like filling your life up, and, and everything was beautiful and alive and aware. But then after a little, little bit of time, things subtly start to shift and take over, and we start growing cold and callous to the needs around us like Scrooge. Here's the deal today. I don't want to end up like Scrooge. Do you? good. I'm in the right place. <laughs> I want to make a difference with my life. I want to do something great for the needs around me. I want to love people the way God has loved me. I want to recover that fresh feeling 
that I had when the Holy Spirit first rushed into my heart and God saved me. I, I don't want to spend my life on something less than that. So today I want to ask you, how can the gospel of grace, not guilt, how can the gospel free us to live lives that truly make a difference? Let's allow this sacred text of Isaiah kind of lead our conversation. And hear me, Isaiah 61 is a famous sacred text. This is the text that Jesus preached his first sermon out of. So if you're Jesus, you're starting out your ministry, you're about to build your platform and let everybody know what you're going to be about, and you've got the entire Old Testament to choose from, what would you choose? He chooses this text, Isaiah 61, and starts out with, the Lord has anointed me. That's, that's, Kenny pointed this out last week, that word anointed, that's Messiah, anointed one, right? And Jesus reads this, he's saying, guys, this, this is what I'm anointed for. This is why I'm the Messiah. This is what I'm all about. I've come to bring good news about injustice. That's what his life was about. And as Christians, it's what our lives are called to be about as well. So the main point today is you can live a life that makes a difference for three reasons. Your future, your past, and your present. All right, you guys ready? All right, let's dive in. Chapter 61, verse 1, we see this. Jesus says, we're going to start with the future. As the Messiah, I'm anointed to come, in verse 2, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you're like, what the heck is that? What's the year of the Lord's favor? Um, this is a reference to Leviticus 25. Because way back in Leviticus 25, there's this fascinating law that's part of Israel's law code. And it says that every 50 years, it would be a year of jubilee, that every 50 years, all debts would be forgiven, all slaves would be freed, all the land went back to its original allotments, because when Israel left Egypt and came to the promised land, God divvied up the land fairly among them all, and so each family, each tribe, each clan got their own allotment of land. But then time passes, right? And so some people do better, some people do worse, some people lose parts of their land, some people uh, you know, through bad life decisions or through disasters, lose parts of it and, and have to go and, and, and sell parts of their land. Others do better, and they get more, and they accrue more wealth and, and things like that. But, but what, what God is basically saying is that every 50 years, no matter what, the land goes back to its original allotments. Think about that. One scholar said it this way. Each person or family had a chance, at least once in their lifetime, to start afresh, no matter how irresponsibly they'd handled their finances or how far into debt they had fallen. That's grace, right? Can you imagine if we did that in America? Like every 50 years, okay, guys, it's year 49. Next year, you get that perfect 850 credit score. Some of you would be like, yes, finally, right? And others of us would be like, dude, no, that's not fair. I worked really hard for that 850 credit score. Why do they get it for free? Grace can seem really unfair when you're working your butt off. Why did God do that? The reason God did that was to say, remember, I own the land. <laughs> right? I'm the author of all your wealth. Everything that you have is a gift of grace. You were slaves in Egypt. I saved you. I brought you out. I set you free. I've placed all of this into your hands. But ultimately, 
Everything you have is mine. And here's the trade-off, and all that I have is yours. Right? I don't want you to live in slave mentality anymore. You're my kids. You're my family. I don't want any poverty in the promised land. So the law of Jubilee was this fascinating law. But look carefully. When the Messiah comes, he's going to say, I proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Not just a year. Not just one of the jubilees that comes up every 50 years. But this is the ultimate jubilee. What's that mean? Look at, look at how it describes it. Look at this. Description, verse one, I'm gonna release the prisoners from darkness. I'm gonna proclaim freedom from the captives. I'm gonna bind up the brokenhearted. I'm gonna preach good news to the poor. But it doesn't stop there. Look at this, verse two. I'm gonna get rid of all mourning. I'm gonna get rid of all grief. I'm gonna get rid of all sorrow. Now, now what's that talking about? Because if you forgive all the debts, that doesn't get rid of all the mourning and sorrow in the world, does it? This is telling us about a future that God is providing. And the future the Messiah is going to bring someday, the new heavens and the new earth, this physical world is going to be wiped clean of all the oppression and all the injustice and all the inequality and the brokenness and the blemishes and the racism and the hunger and the disease and the, and the death and the sorrow. It's going to be gone forever. That's the future. That's what the gospel says. It's not just wishful thinking. It's a, it's a future promise. But what's that mean? What are the implications of that for us? Well, there's a, there's a couple. Think about this firstly. Um, if God invented both body and soul, and if he came to redeem both body and soul, that's what the resurrection is, right? Romans 8 says, we're longing for the redemption of our bodies. If he's going to redeem both your body and soul, if he's going to get rid of both physical and spiritual darkness, then that has to be reflected in our lives as believers, right? Like being a Christian isn't just spiritual, emotional, intellectual. Being Christian has a very physical, everyday reality to it. And two, if you believe that that's what God, at infinite cost to himself, is all about, if if that's what he's going for, the end of disease and death and suffering and, and sickness, if we believe in that future then, we should be healing the sick where we can. And we should be feeding the hungry where we can. And we should be welcoming the outsider where we can. It's our way of showing that we believe in that future. In other words, our lives have to reflect that future, right? Does that make sense? So the first reason why we care about those in need around us is the future. I just, I just want to pause here for a second and ask you a probing question, a difficult question. Do you really believe that? And here's why that's a difficult question. Put you on the hot seat for a second, and myself too. To the degree that we do believe that, we'll live like it. And the, to the degree that we see our lives not lining up with that future kingdom reality, there's a disconnect. We might be able to say we believe in that hope, but it's not the driving hope of our daily life. Our view of the future directly affects how we live now. When you look at your life, what does your daily life say about what you're believing about God's future? Is it rooted in what God says? Does it look like more and more like his kingdom? Is it overflowing with hope? Is that your daily experience? Or if not, why not? 
What other voices besides God's voice, what other visions of the future besides God's vision for the future are driving your life? Will God actually do what he says here in Isaiah? Will God provide for those who grieve, bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair? Was that promised? Was that purchased with Christ's blood? Was that modeled in Christ's resurrection? Is that really the hope of ours in the gospel? Or is that just a nice thing that we think about every once in a while? So the first reason you can live a life that makes a difference is your future hope. But that's not the only reason. There's a second reason, and that's your present. Not just the future, but the present. For that, let's go to verse 6 and 7. In verse 6, it says, Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? We'll get to fasting in a minute, all right? When it says, To loose the chains of injustice, to set the oppressed free. What does that mean? God's saying, I want you to loose the chains of injustice. I want you to set the oppressed free free. And then he describes it in verse 7. He says, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter to clothe him? So in verse uh, 6, he says, I want you to do justice. And then in verse 7, he says, and what that means is, I want you to pour yourself out for the poor, for the hungry, for the naked, and for the homeless. In fact, in verse 10, it says, we are to spend ourselves not just our money, but our lives. Every bit of capital we have, our intellectual capital, our our spiritual capital, our physical capital, our our education, everything you've got as a resource, you're supposed to spend it for those in need around you. And that's, I think that's why a lot of people don't like putting verse six and verse seven together. Because if you say that verse six is talking about doing justice, and then you say that it's described in verse seven, caring for those in need around you, Some people don't like that. They say, wait a second, verse 7 is talking about charity, right? And we should, yeah, of course, we should should be charitable to the poor. Yeah, of course. And I think that's why we'd rather use the word charity, because charity is never obligatory. Charity, it's optional, right? You may feel like giving, you may not. It's okay, it's charity. You don't have to. Here's the problem. Justice is not optional. If verse 6 is describing verse 7, then God is saying, if you don't feed the hungry, you're being unjust. And a lot of people say, nope, I don't believe it. Nope. I don't owe anybody anything. I want to give somebody something. Okay, that's fine. That's up to me. That's charity. But it's not unjust. And that doesn't work. And I'll show you why. Look at verse 7. Look at the last clause. Share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe him, and do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Ah, what does that mean? Who's your own flesh and blood? Anybody. Family and and mankind. The human family, right? Your family, someone you're related to, the phrase poor wanderer is described as your own flesh and blood. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, shelter the poor wanderer. Do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. What God is saying is the poor wanderer is your own flesh and blood. And who's a poor wanderer? It's an impoverished person from another race or nation. And that word is translated throughout scripture, foreigner, stranger, alien, immigrant. So God is saying, if you don't feed the hungry, you're being unjust. 
And when you turn away from a person in need, immigrants, other races, other classes, you're turning away from your own flesh and blood. Now, why would he say that? And that's a hard pill to swallow. I think if you find that a hard pill to swallow, imagine if you lived back then in the Old Testament in a patriarchal society, because which many ancient societies were, right? Where family meant everything, where blood meant everything, where your, your family name was what it was all about. To say that a poor person of another race is your own flesh and blood, that's crazy talk. Come on, no, I've got, got enough problems to deal with just with my family. I can't take on other people's problems. But what's God saying? He's saying that every human being is in the image of God, and if you understand the fact that I created all human beings and they're all bear my image. Then if you turn away from them, it's as if you're turning away from your own flesh and blood. In fact, that's exactly what you're doing. Therefore, you are responsible for their needs. To turn away from your own flesh and blood is wrong. It's not just uncharitable, it's unjust, it's wrong. And that's a pretty strong argument, right? A lot of smiles right now in the building. I think often, if we're honest, our internal attitudes are a lot more like Scrooge, even though we may hide it better than, we do, uh, than he does, right? We may comply with generosity when we're put on the spot, just like that TED Talk. But what's really going on in our hearts, Scrooge shows us, because Scrooge doesn't hold back. There's this scene, you guys remember the scene early in the, in the book or the movie where the guys come over to his office to collect charity? And they're like, sir, what can we put you down for this year, Mr. Scrooge, for charity? And what's he say? He says, have the workhouses shut down? Are there no prisons? And they're like, but sir, many would rather die than go to those places. And he says, if they'd rather die, they better do it and decrease the surplus population. <laughs> Scrooge. Let me ask you, and you're like, I would never say that. I wouldn't even think that. That's crazy. But let me ask you, how does that conversation show how he views himself? He views himself as better, right? Better than the poor. He's, he's pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. He's a self-made man. He's not going to enable them in their poverty. No way. By giving them charity, he would never do that. He's worked hard for everything he's got. And, and, and so uh, do we ever think like that as Americans? Yeah, it's the same fundamental thinking. We may not express it like he does, and we may not think about it as deeply as he did right there, but it's that same root, fundamental cause in our heart where we think we've earned it. Most people in our culture, even Christians, say, wait, I worked hard for this. It's mine. Sure, listen, let's talk about that. If you have some stuff, for sure, you've worked hard for it, and it's yours. Absolutely, but only to some degree, not to the main degree, because the main reason why you've got anything is not just that you worked hard for it. There are other variables. Think about the fact that you were born in this century instead of the sixth century. Think about the fact that you were born in a country you were born in. You were born with a talent God placed into you. You were, you were born with the health and the family that God saw fit to grant you. You were born with all these things, and without them, where would you be? What am I saying? I'm saying everything you have is a gift of grace, and God determined the times and places you'd live, and God blessed you with the personality and the family you have, and God filled your life with talents and abilities, and God gave you life and breath and strength and wisdom, even the ability to gain wealth. 
He says to his children of Israel when he's, he's given them the law in Deuteronomy and he's talking to them about taking care of needs around them. He says this, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Everything you have is a gift. So if you act as if it's only yours and it only matters how you want to spend it and what you want to do with it, you're not living in reality. If you act as if it's yours, it shows you do not understand your real relationship to God or your real relationship to other human beings. Because what you have is a gift from God. And what other human beings are is people who are made in the same image of God that you're made in. They are infinitely precious. So whether you acknowledge it or not, if you ignore those in need around you, you're being unjust. So let's get real for a second. Let's talk about current events. I don't like being political, seriously, but I'm not even trying to be political here. The whole immigrant caravan thing, going down at the border, that situation. This conversation about the border situation in our culture has been very political, politicized and simplified from the complexity of the situation into two like arguments, closed borders, open borders, right, for the most part? But what's happening at the border is not simply a political issue. It's a gospel issue. It's a human issue. It's an issue our faith should speak to more than our political affiliations. So regardless of where you find yourself politically, on the left, on the right, open borders, closed borders, red or blue, choosing sides often fails to address the deeper humanitarian and faith-based questions that the gospel would implore us to ask ourselves. So let me ask you a few questions and just help with this briefly. If you're a proponent of closing the borders, fine, politically, that's fine. But what about those on the other side whom we're called to love? What of our family, our brothers and sisters in the faith who are suffering on the other side of the border? Are we not called to love them with as much love, if not more, than that of our country? Will you take them aid? Will you find a solution for their safety? If you say, well, that's not me, I'm on the other side. If you're an opponent of opening the borders, fine, it's fine. You're entitled to your political ideal. But what will you do with those who enter when they don't have jobs or they don't have rights? Will you continue to fight for their dignity or are you just wiling out on Facebook right now? (laughs) Will you find them lodging? Will you open your home? Will you help provide jobs for them? Will you volunteer your time at a charity, or some way to help them assimilate into society. Because this issue goes way past politics. And I feel like sometimes we simplify it so that we can just put it over there and say, check the box, I thought about this, and I line up with this side. And we're not engaging with our faith, with the very real needs around us. And it's overwhelming to talk about all the needs in all the world. We would spend every Sunday doing it because there's always needs, but sometimes it's in your own backyard. And we have to do something. The deeper question is, how does the gospel inform our view of this situation? And God is saying through Isaiah, if you don't feed the hungry, you're being unjust. And when you turn away from the person in need in your area of another nationality, it's like turning away from your own flesh and blood. That's the bad news, but there's good news. Look at at what it says in verse 9. Guess what happens when we do live in light of the gospel? 
if you do away with the yoke of oppression, if you spend your lives, spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, if you satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in darkness and your night will become like noonday. Look, when God's people start living in light of the gospel in a way like Isaiah describes here in this passage, guess what happens? Everybody sees God's grace on display and people are drawn to him through the way we live out the gospel. If you want to see your friends, family, neighbors, coworkers come to faith, start living out a faith worth coming to. Start living in such a way that we're incarnating the gospel of a God who loved us and gave himself for us and left his comfort and left his wealth and his glory so that he could be among us and suffer and take on our needs. If you sit long enough, you can explain away anything. But the gospel holds up a mirror and asks us to examine our hearts and examine ourselves. Whew, all right. Now, I'm not going to stop there, because if I did, um, I guess the message up to this point has been guilt. Feel guilty. You have money. Other people don't. You should feel really guilty. Go out and do something about it. Let us pray, right? <laughs> That won't work in the long run, right? That, that would be like the TED Talk. It wouldn't change our heart. Maybe it'll work for a little while, but guilt, <laughs> I've been around long enough to know guilt does not change hearts. There's a third reason in the Bible, in this passage, that gives us to, to be involved with those in need around us. The third reason, it's kind of the primary one in the Bible. It's not the future, it's not just the present, it's the past. Um, the past, the grace of the atoning sacrifice. If you understand the atoning sacrifice, if you understand what's been done for you, you'll want to be involved with the poor. More than that, it'll change your understanding of the poor. At the very beginning of this passage, it says, is not this the kind of fast I've chosen? Now, what's that about? What's he talking about? Isaiah, when he's talking about this. The first part of this passage, which we didn't get time to read, but I'm gonna go back and look at it real quick. Israel is complaining to God. They're bellyaching. Look at, look at, and they feel like God isn't answering their prayers. Watch this. Um, I think it's verse, verse three uh, or four. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? We have humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed. Right? They're talking to God. God says back to them, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Is this the kind of fasting I've chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? Unacceptable to the Lord? And then he says, no, in verse six, this is the kind of fasting I've chosen. And he goes on to describe helping the poor and those in need around you. What's all this about? It's talking about Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, have you guys heard that term before? Yom Kippur, the, the day of atonement is what it means. It was one day a year the Israelites came together for a blood sacrifice to atone for all of their sins. It was really a way for God to say, look, even though you know, you've, you've been trying very hard to live a good life, even though you've tried to honor God all year long, you've tried to obey the law, the Ten Commandments, every year you're going to look back and you're going to realize we failed. right? And Yom Kippur was God's way of saying there's, there's no way that anyone can have a relationship with me through their moral excellence. The only way anybody can be in relationship with me is through atonement, through forgiveness, through grace, through sacrifice. So on the day of Yom Kippur, in order to show that they understood that God was a God of grace and that they'd been forgiven, the Israelites would, would, would fast 
on the Day of Atonement. Why? Well, fasting is a way of humbling yourself. Right? I told you we'd talk about fasting. Fasting is a way of denying yourself. It's a way of saying, I realize I'm a sinner saved by grace, so I'll act humbly. But God noticed something. He noticed something in the way the Israelites were fasting. Because what they're essentially doing, they would fast, they would deny themselves food, they continue to do all those things on the outside, but, but they, behind the scenes, they were exploiting other people. So they looked super religious outwardly. They're acting like they understood grace, but inwardly, they really didn't get grace, and it was showing up in their lives. And what God is saying here is, if you don't understand the, the kind of fasting I want, which is another way of saying, you don't understand the kind of life I want to result from an understanding of the grace I've given you. The, the knowledge that you're saved not by your works, you're saved by grace, that you're saved only because of the atoning sacrifice. And he says, if you want to see the kind of life that should come from grace, here's the fasting I want. Spend yourselves for the poor. Pour yourselves out for the poor. Don't just give up sweets for Lent. That's great. But give up living at this level because you're so generous to those in need around you. Pour yourselves out your whole life. That's the kind of life that should come from a knowledge of grace. And God is saying, if you really understood blood sacrifice, if you really understood my grace, and you saw the hungry, you'd feed them. If you saw the naked, you'd clothe them. If you saw the homeless, you would shelter them. That's what God is saying. If you're not caring for them, it shows you don't understand my grace. Now, guys, let's be understanding to the Israelites for a minute. Because to what degree could they really have fully understood the meaning of blood sacrifice on Yom Kippur? I mean, I know they understood that their life was there because of God's mercy. And they understood that there was a sacrifice needed to cover for their sins. Sure, they, they got it in general, but they never really understood what it was pointing to. But today we can. And you know what that means? It means we have even less excuse. Centuries later, Jesus Christ shows up in this blood-curdling and amazing passage, parts of his teaching, Matthew 25. And he takes Isaiah 58 and like a Rubik's Cube, he just kind of twists it all around, okay? And this is, do you, you remember what God is saying in Isaiah 58? He's saying, you know, you say I've atoned for your sins. You say you know about blood sacrifice. You say you get that you're saved by grace. But um, if you see the homeless, if you see the naked, if you see the hungry, and you don't do anything about it, you really don't get what I'm about, right? By the way, I just, I need to say this. God is not saying that you're saved by helping those in need around you. God is saying, if you're saved, you will help those in need around you. There's a big difference there. Okay, so don't hear it wrong. Don't get it twisted. In Matthew 25, listen to what Jesus does. He takes Isaiah 58, almost verbatim, and he says this. On judgment day, I will look at some people and say, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire. Ouch! For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not for, do for me. You know what Jesus is saying there? Exactly the same thing that God is saying in Isaiah. If you love me, 
If you know my grace, then you will see those in need around you and you will love them with the same kind of love you've been given. You will shelter them, you will clothe them, you will help them. But if you don't love them, it shows you don't understand my love at all. He's saying, if you don't care for the poor, you don't, you don't understand grace. And you say, well, wait a minute, how could that be? Let's think about this for a minute. Let me ask you a question. Do you know what it means when Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit? You ever heard that and wondered, what does poor in spirit mean? Does that mean I have a very small spirit? I don't know exactly what that means, right? But um, he's basically saying only the poor in spirit are blessed. What's that mean? It means you have to be spiritually bankrupt, spiritually poor. I'll put it like this. Do you know you are spiritually and morally bankrupt before God? Do you really believe that? I'll put it another way. Seriously, consider this for a second, okay? If you were to stand before God right now, would you feel like he owes you? At least one of us would not. Or would you be willing to admit that there is nothing you've ever done? Even your best deeds were sometimes mixed with broken motives. You've never loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've never fully loved your neighbor as yourself. You actually have nothing you could say to God. Hey, God, on the basis of this, let me enter into your kingdom. Accept me. You're morally and spiritually bankrupt. Do you believe that? Do you believe the only way that you could possibly have any relationship with God, any hope, is through the absolute free generosity of God? Then you're spiritually poor. Then you're spiritually bankrupt. You've declared bankruptcy. The only way the Bible says you can be saved is through the bleeding charity of God. His heart that bled literally on the cross. The only way we can get charity is if we're humble enough to ask for it. If you're too proud to ask for charity, you'll never get it. And what Jesus is saying here is that only the poor in spirit can be saved. And that's why he said to declare liberation for the spiritually poor, because only the spiritually poor can receive his salvation. Look, if you've become spiritually poor, and you've received Jesus' salvation, if you've believed the gospel, in other words, that'll completely change the way you see the materially poor. You can never look down on them. You could never, ever be condescending. You could never be like Scrooge. You can never be like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, because you didn't. You can never be like, man, they're undeserving. You made your bed. Go lie in it. Because spiritually speaking, we all made our bed, and we were lying in it, and God came and raised us up. God's generosity saved you. And what's that mean? It means if you're truly poor in spirit, spiritually poor, you will love the materially poor. When you look at them, you'll feel like you're looking in a mirror. You'll realize that this is what you looked like to God, and yet he gave everything to help you. And that's exactly what we see in the gospel. You know, on that last day, we can't stand in front of Jesus and say, hey, when did we see you naked? What's he going to say? Are you kidding me? They were gambling for my clothes at the foot of the cross. We can't say, when did we see you thirst? What? I cried out, I thirst. Lord, when did we ever see you in prison? He'd say, are you kidding? I was beaten, I was thrown in prison, I was mocked and tried and condemned to death. And on the cross, I, who deserved acceptance, 
got condemnation so that you who deserve condemnation could be accepted by grace. When you see Jesus becoming poor and powerless and marginalized from you, when you see Jesus Christ becoming helpless for you, you can never ever look at the poor, marginalized victims of injustice the same way again. Never. And I mean, if Jesus loves you so much as to become poor and powerless, then we have to love the poor and powerless with the same love that he did. We have to. Let me close like this. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, writes, to the degree that you grasp the grace of God, money will have no dominion over you. Think on his costly grace until it changes you into a generous people. And what we've discussed today is an incredibly strong truth that, that not guilt, but grace, God's grace, and how Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor so that through his poverty, we might become spiritually rich. If you understand that at all, it radically changes your way of looking at people in need around you. And it gives you this, this, this passionate, loving desire to do something for them, just like Christ did for you. And that's not guilt, that's grace. I know this is sitting heavy. I can see it. I can feel it. I need to throw a joke in right now just to lighten the mood. But I'm not going to because I want it to rest heavy with all of us because it's resting heavy with me right now. Not guilt, but grace. If we will allow the grace of God to rewrite our story, our past, present, and future, that grace will free us to live lives that can bring change into the world. But here's the deal. Many of us know all about that grace. There's so many Christians that know they're sinners saved by grace. They get it, and yet we still struggle to spend ourselves on the needs of those around us. There's so many Christians I know who do believe they're sinners saved by grace, and yet they're not very involved with the needs around them. They're certainly not spending themselves. They might be giving money here and there, but we're not spending ourselves. Why? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little pressure off you. Um, it's our fault. We ministers, I think. Um, I hope you appreciate what I'm doing for you. Um, and I'll tell you why. I believe the heart of every believer has a button that when grace presses it, it, it makes you want to help. When, when grace is pressed in, in uh, continuation with the poor, that button, grace, not guilt, connects to those in needs. I think, I think most of us ministers only know how to get you there through guilt, to be honest. But when the gospel of grace is connected to the needy, somebody pushes that button and, and, and you wake up like Scrooge. At the, end of, at the end of Scrooge, what do we see? Scrooge is seen as his whole life laid out before him. He's seen his, his, what could have been. He's seen what was. He's seen what is. He sees his end. And everybody around him is so miserable because he was a miser, right? And at the very end, he looks down and he sees his grave and he goes falling into it. And guess what? Just like that, it's Christmas morning. And he wakes up in his bed sheets. And now he's got a second chance. And all those, all those things he had wasted, he now has an opportunity to fix him. He was a dead man. Now he's alive. Life has never tasted sweeter. He lost all his money. Now it's all back. He'd ruined all those people's lives, and yet they're still here. You remember the story? What happened to him that Christmas morning? You guys remember what he runs doing? He's like, you know, no. Does anybody? Yeah. Go for it. What, what's some of the things we see Scrooge doing that Christmas morning? Buys a turkey? What? 
He gives money away. There's actually in the book, there's this weird part where he's standing on his head and his maid walks in and freaks out and he's talking to her upside down. She goes running out screaming because she thinks he's possessed. <laughs> Why? Why is Scrooge acting so differently? Why is he, I mean, he's still screaming and cackling and laughing, but it's not to get money, it's to give it away. He's still scheming about conspiring about how he's going to shower people with all these gifts. Why? Because he got a second chance at life. He got a second chance. Um, to, he thought everything was dead. He thought it was over. He thought it was lost. And bam, he got the second chance. Now listen, that's not a whole lot of grace, but it's still grace, right? It's not the same kind of grace we get in the gospel, second, third, fourth, unlimited chances. But it's something. It's a little picture of grace. And because of that, he can't wait to, to get out there and love people. And the new Scrooge has been changed by grace to where his attitude towards his money is, it's not mine. And the Bible says the very same thing. The Bible says that if you've experienced God's grace, you'll have a complete change of heart when it comes to your life, your money, your time, your energy, your effort. Nowhere do we remember this like Christmas where Jesus Christ became the unmatchable giver. He left heaven and came as a little helpless poor baby born in a barn. And we remember that he was willing to leave it all for us. Now, Scrooge reminds me of one other point. I need to make this super applicable real quick. This is small. Uh, Mother Teresa has this great quote. Um, She says, not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. You know, Scrooge, when he runs out, he doesn't go out and end global poverty, right? He can't do that. But what's he do? He gives Bob Cratchit the best Christmas he's ever had. He gives reconciliation to his family. Tiny Tim doesn't die. He lives. Scrooge doesn't do all these amazing, great things, but he does these really small, regular things with great love. I want to ask you, when we're talking about God's grace, we're talking about how you've been loved, how you've been freely given all this, what are some of the small things he's calling you to do in your life with great love? Do you have people's faces or names that pop into your head right now that God's putting on your heart to share his grace with? Do you have ways of acting this out to live by the grace you've been given? How can the gospel free you to live a life that makes a difference? And I'm gonna close with this vintage sermon from the 1800s. I've read it before, his piece, and I'm gonna read it in closing as we pray. Robert Murray McShane, he preached on the text, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And just, just maybe even close your eyes and listen to this in closing. Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be made branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over again in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Objection. My money's my own. Answer. Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. No man forceth it from me then where, we sh- where should we have been? Objection, the, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said the same thing. There are wicked rebels against my father's law. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection, the poor may abuse it, right? We don't want to enable them. Answer, Christ might have said the same, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. 
Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Can you feel the Spirit of God pressing that grace button in your soul? Let's pray. Father, I I ask you, help us to become bearers of this great message that Jesus Christ came to preach good news about injustice. And that means, Lord, not, not only the spiritually poor can can receive a salvation, but also, once we do, we can give to the materially poor around us. That you create this new community of people who love those in need around us and see them as, as family, as, as humans created in your image. We don't see the mission to those in need merely as charity, but, but see it as justice. God, I pray you would help us to see how the gospel is good news for the spiritually poor, It's good news for the materially poor. We pray you would help us to become the kind of church in which that is obvious and evident in our life together. We pray this in Jesus' name.